everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have got an amazing show for you today. We have new Raspberry Pis. We've got a new smart home plan from Telstra in Australia. We've got hope for Sonos. We've got the future of retail. We're going to save some rhinos. We're going to talk about NVIDIA Shield. And if we get to it, we will talk about my experience with Stringify, which is a really kind of cool. It's like an if this, then that. They're going to hate me for saying it, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We also have a sponsored message from Dell in the middle of the podcast and an amazing guest. We have three amazing guests. I went to an event at National Instruments, and I managed to run into the CEO of PTC, Jim Heppelman, the CEO of NI, Alex Deveron, and their head of embedded systems, Jamie Smith. So all of them are coming on the show this week to talk about what is going on in the industrial internet of things. Now, let's go to a quick sponsor message. This week's sponsor is me. That's right, you guys. I don't have a sponsor this week, but I decided to use this spot to tell you about two things. One, if you would like to be a sponsor in this space, you should email andrew at iotpodcast.com. And two, if you can't get enough Internet of Things news from me here, you should sign up for my newsletter, stacyoniot.com. It's also my brand new website, and sometimes I might surprise you by putting up new content there. Dun, dun, dun. So if you want more, go there, go to stacyoniot.com. And if you want to advertise, email andrew at iotpodcast.com. All right, I think that's it. That was my 30 seconds. And now <laughs> back to the show. Kevin, let's, Stacey. let's kick it off with pie. I love pie, especially when it's raspberry pie. Mm. Yeah. So uh, they've got a new compute module. This is the third instance of it, I believe. I almost feel like it's no, because they have raspberry. They have the original. They have yeah. one that's better. And then they have the zero that's like five bucks. And now they have right. the superpower. Right. Okay. So this is the, they're calling it the compute module three which is based on the, the latest Raspberry Pi, the Pi 3. And what they're promising is, uh, even though it's got the same Broadcom 2837 processor that runs up to 1.2 gigahertz and a gig of RAM, it is double the RAM and about 10 times CPU performance of the original compute module, which was 2014, so almost three years ago now. And before the show, Stacey and I, you and I were talking, like, does a Raspberry Pi, a compute module, does it need more power if it's going to be used say for iot maybe a hub or something like that and right now maybe not but you raised a good point they're trying to stay ahead of the curve i think because as we add more devices to our homes it takes more time to compute what needs to happen all little steps to turn things on turn things off or adjust based on sensors so you know at first i was like i don't really see the point of this but based on your thought mm, makes sense it makes sense to stay ahead of the curve yeah, I think you're going to buy a hub probably every two to three years. And for those of you guys who are shocked, you're like, no, no, I'm buying a hub once, <laughs> darn it. Um, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> no, it's it's a computer. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. buy a PC, expect it to last forever. So I think this makes sense. I also think if we're going to do more local compute for IoT mm. in our house, it also makes sense for that. And this is actually a really good use case for like the type of ARM 
chips that are out there, because these are very small workloads that are going to come in kind of all at once, and you're going to want to parse them up if you can. I'm not saying that maybe we should have a GPU on there. I don't know. Um, or multi-core. But that's kind of my thinking here. So yeah, I'm excited about this. Plus, there's such a huge number of people out there building crazy stuff with pies. And no one, no one in the history of the world has ever said, I need less compute power. Right, right. Pricing is not bad at all. It's uh, 20, I'm sorry, $30 for the compute module three. They have a, a lighter version for $25. So, you know, if you just want to tinker around, um, kind of build your own hub, use some uh, off the shelf software, open source software, whatever you want to do, it's not going to be a big investment up front to, to play with one of these. So, and that's, that's the beauty of the Raspberry Pi always has been. And I hope they stick with that. And just so you know, the compute module is drop in. It can be a drop in replacement for the first Raspberry Pi compute module because they mm-hmm. are pin compatible. So Yay. if you're like, gosh, this Raspberry Pi print server, didn't you make a Pi's print server actually? I did. Yeah. I did. You're like, oh, it's so slow. You can just be like, actually, there's nothing around it. It doesn't make sounds. No. Yeah. All right. So that is our Pi news. Yay, Pi. Moving right along to this is some fun news for me because I own six of these mm-hmm. and I have been very frustrated about it. But Sonos, actually last week, and we didn't address it on the show, John McFarlane, the CEO of Sonos, stepped down and he was replaced with Patrick Spence, who has been working at Sonos for a while. And this felt very much like a a great move for Sonos. I mean, I've met John McFarlane. He is a wonderful man. He basically, he kind of missed the boat on voice and mm. so putting Sonos in the position of being not just the speakers for the entire connected home, but also the ears. And instead, Amazon created the Amazon Echo and boom, they took that. And for what it's worth, Sonos is still a great product. And I'm actually holding on to my Sonoses because in sometime this year, they're supposed to start working with the Echo. So Fingers crossed, you guys. But Patrick Spence is really up on the voice. He is like, we are doing it. We are not going to do it ourselves. We are going to work with others. Sonos has always been really good at playing in an ecosystem. It originally came out with like this vision of being like, we want to be the best darn internet connected speaker ever. So they never tried to launch their own music service to compete with others. They just wanted to make all of your existing music services sound better. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's the tack they take in voice. I think they actually could have done their own voice thing, but now it's kind of too late. So, you know, we'll see if it's the way forward for them, I guess. Yeah, I I wonder. I mean, it doesn't make sense for them to kind of create their own voice interface when there are options out there. And um, I know they have been talking to Amazon and they haven't announced anything, but that may be the way to go to use the voice services from, from Amazon. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you caught this news or did we talk about it last week that Huawei actually has a phone with Amazon's voice services in it pre-installed as well. So that's what people are starting to do now. Just glom on to what's already available and working well. That's true. And way back in the day, because Sonos launched super early, they actually had like a $300 controller that you bought to control your Sonos system. And -hmm. when smartphones came out, they were like, wait a second. (laughs) <laughs> Let's give people an app because that $300 controller, while revenue for us, is also a huge barrier to entry. And now in this this interview, he, Patrick Spence actually said that Sonos were in 20% of American households, which that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a huge yeah. market. So 
I think we can expect good things here. I am ultimately a little sad that they missed the boat last year on this, but you know, there's still time. I mean, they've got such a broad user base. It's, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but um, essentially integrate some voice services, flip a switch, and you've got a ton of people, you know, that are much happier now and uh, less likely to leave for different connected speakers. And buy more because like. And buy more. Mm -hmm. Maybe Kevin will actually ditch his Bluetooth speakers for something high quality. Uh, High quality. I love my Marshall uh, Stanmore Bluetooth speaker. What are you talking about? I just, I, Bluetooth speakers drive me nuts. All right. This is one of our constant, <laughs> constant fights. The um, fight continues. Dun, dun, dun. All right. This is a quick bit, two quick bits for you. One is Telstra. We're going to go international for a moment. Telstra, which is an Australian carrier, is getting into the smart home business, much like Comcast or AT&T has done. They've created a service that's going to cost $25 25 Australian dollars a month. And you basically will get a starter kit, one for either security or one for automation and energy. They've got their own hub. It's pretty much like what you would expect from other people, like other carriers. And I mention this mostly because I do think this year we're going to see a lot more carriers come out with this sort of offering. And I think it's a probable way for smart home devices to get mainstreamed. Mm. One, because it's easier and people love easy. And mm-hmm. two, you're going to feel more secure with it and you're going to feel like most of your devices aren't going to be bricked. And I think those are some of the worries that customers have right now. And those are valid concerns. Um, it's interesting you mentioned security. And I know that um, last year Telstra was talking about uh, using blockchain and biometric security for their IoT stuff. So you know, they're not fiddling around here and just putting products out there and not thinking about one of the most important aspects that we talk about all the time, which is security. So at least they're they're thinking forward in that respect. They are. And they're one of the companies that at CES had a smart home suite of products out on display. And I will say, this is probably good. I don't know who makes Telstra's gear, but these are the kind of things that I'm going to be looking for is who are the providers to the big carriers and security mm-hmm. firms that are releasing these? Are they startups? Which startups are actually good enough to make it into these systems? Or maybe there, it's not a question of being good enough. Maybe it's a question of being willing to give up some control of the user and the app experience. Mm-hmm. So these are things that are this, this year is going to be a big one for IoT in this function and keep an eye on it. I'll help. Okay. That was that. Also in an international news, Nest has gone to four more European countries. They are now in Germany, Austria, Italy, and Spain. They're already in the UK. And basically, this just pushes them out further into the continent, as it were. I wonder, and, and I'll just say Nest is part of Alphabet, which owns Google, and I am a full time consultant for Google. So I just want to get that out of the way. I wonder what has taken so long. Do you think it's privacy laws in those countries that need to be mitigated? Or I'm so I mean, glad you asked that. Oh, look at that! It's not even on the show notes, and and I just asked the right question. You are that's that's why you're the host or co-host mm. with me. Mm. All right. So I think one of the issues here is regulatory climates, mm-hmm. and not just privacy, but also getting things through the different countries' versions of the FCC. And the reason this is kind of interesting to me is because when I was at CES, I spoke with a bunch of 
companies from like the France tech pavilion and Mm -hmm. all of that sort of thing. And they were talking about they're not available here in the US. The products aren't available in the US, but they're working their way through the FCC's process. And Mm -hmm. that provides a lot of stumbling blocks for them. Now, Nest is, is pretty professional. They're not like a startup. They probably can get through, but these things take time. And so I don't know if this is, you know, good, bad. I mean, nobody wants a lot of interference jacking up their existing systems. So I tend to agree that it's good, but that regulatory hurdle can take time. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not like hardware supply. There's plenty of those products being built. It's just getting through, like you, you're probably correct, probably the regulatory agencies that are specific to each country. And and I can't say I'm up on the latest frequencies that clash over over in the, in the EU. So I don't know if there's something that a typical Nest product uses that interferes with an everyday thing over there, but it still seems like a long time. Hmm. It does. And, and, you know, they also have to hire like company specific mm-hmm. support. Yeah. You know, if you're yeah. in Italy, you probably don't do your customer support in English. Right. Right. Localization. Yep. So, you know, challenges, but oh, yeah. I bring this up because, you know, this is a market where you're going to have to have a fairly large footprint. So you're probably going to want to go to places where you can build up your market easily and quickly. So that means smaller countries may miss out on some products from startups. Anyhow, moving right along, let's move from international to enterprise IoT. What we have here is this week is NRF, the National Retail Federation Conference event. Smorgasbord. They call it the big show, the NRF big show, because I was there yesterday at it. Did you see anything exciting? I didn't have a lot of time. I did see a lot of I did see a lot of exciting things. Um, interesting, uh, you know, retailers, they're looking for ways to, you know, boost their foot traffic in stores. They're looking for ways to literally track customers where they are in the store, uh, how much engagement they have with a particular product or aisle, even emotions, um, cameras that will take a look at customers' faces and try and determine how happy or disappointed people are in products or displays. It's, there is a lot of stuff going on there. You wouldn't think retail is glitzy in that respect, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. I like to use the word glitzy there. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, really? Retail is glitzy. Glitzy. So what we, and actually what was interesting here is the keynote for the NRF event was Brian Krasanich, the CEO of Intel. Mm-hmm. And Intel announced that they would spend $100 million investing in retail tech. They also announced basically, it's a gateway. <laughs> I'm like, it's a gateway. Lots of words, but they all come down to this. It's a gateway. It's a gateway, but the gateway runs software. And the idea of the software is Intel's trying to link all of these disparate retail systems into one Intel-powered platform, compute platform. Mm -hmm. So right now you might have, you know, an appliance or a device that measures emotions and you have to, that goes into one place. And then if you want to track that, you've got to go to that one place. What Intel's trying to do is bring the emotion tracking, the inventory tracking, all of this into one platform via support for all these APIs, basically. I saw a lot of plays at that. A lot of people, a lot of companies trying to bring cohesive solutions to manage and analyze all the data that these disparate systems capture. So that was a big theme, I thought, at the show. And that'll be a big theme 
for everyone probably till the end of time. Yes. Because a lot of these systems right now are siloed. They're, mm-hmm. you, they're point solutions. They're kind of like, you know, in the smart home, you buy a point device and then you're like, oh, right. now I want to bring it together. Well, these guys have been buying point tech. So this is going to be increasingly important as retailers are, they're shutting down locations. They're having to really boost the amount of money they make per square foot. They also are dealing with, you know, higher labor costs. So they really want to reduce, I'm guessing they want to reduce the labor, but they will say they want to make each employee more efficient. And they can do that by giving, equipping them with more data and insights about a customer. So basically the goal is to make the retail experience in store a lot higher end, which Mm -hmm. makes sense, you know, because by golly, I buy probably 80% of things in my house off of Amazon. Yeah. Um, And it's not because I have an Echo, but it's just easy and I hate to shop. So, yay. So we saw Intel making these announcements. I actually talked to Zebra, which is a Zebra Technologies. It's a it's well known for RFID, but they're also creating a similar platform. And this one is kind of tied into tracking inventory and tracking customers. So actually, they could end up possibly sending data to an Intel-oriented system. This actually has some cool stuff because it's RFID tags in the clothing or in the inventory, but it's also got these overhead kind of tracking devices. Mm-hmm. So right now... A lot of people think of IoT and retail and they think of beacons, Bluetooth-based beacons. But basically, and even talking to Intel, RFID is still king here. And it well, be- yeah, I mean, because it doesn't need power for one thing. It's small, can be attached to practically anything, you know, all of your inventory. So it just economically makes sense. I'm not saying it's the best solution, but it's one that still works. So that's all practical. Intel also showed off something really cool, which is a 3D printer for clothes. That was kind of annoying the way I did that with my voice, but I was really <laughs> excited. I was like, oh, that's neat. It prints, um, it prints clothing for you. This is, hmm. this is futuristic. And I am really keen to see once retailers have this data, am I going to get something crazy like smart mirrors that I, I look in and I can see my clothes and it suggests other things? Or is it going to be a little bit lower key and maybe some more like the Apple store where every employee has like a tablet and they just come through and they're like, oh, I see you're doing this. You know, this might also look good on you. Basically turning. I, some- I think it'll, I think it'll be both, quite honestly. There we go. Both, both scenarios, because some customers want that handheld experience, not handheld device, but, you know, holding hands with a not literally, but uh, a store associate to walk them through and have personalized shopping with assistants. And some people just want to engage in the product themselves and figure out what's best for them. And and we saw the, the smart mirror, I think, three years ago at CES, where literally you'd stand in front of it and it would show you wearing different clothes of your choice based on you hitting a button, superimpose it to the clothes to see what you would look like. And some people want that. So I think retailers will embrace both. I would like that on my home smart mirror. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon, show me what this looks like on my smart mirror. Someday. Right. Someday. I'm like, the future is ours. All right. Hey, you guys asked for us to talk about the NVIDIA Shield. And I was kind of like, what? We can do that. But we can, because Kevin went out and bought one. And so... I'm, Kevin's such a sucker <laughs> for gadgets. 
<laughs> that was the subtext. I wasn't going to say that out loud. Kevin. That's okay. I, I think we all know. <laughs> so tell us about the shield. I'm going to start off with something not negative, but if I'm going to come out and say, it. if you already have an Nvidia shield, because this came out two years ago originally, you don't need to buy a new Nvidia shield. And I say that because even though Nvidia at CES unveiled a new shield, it's actually the same internals, the new one and the, and the old one. So if you have one, don't buy one buy, or don't buy a new one because with a software upgrade, you're going to get all the features that the new one has. And the reason, this was really smart of NVIDIA, I thought. The reason they didn't upgrade the hardware is because they don't need to. The Tegra chip that they have in the original and now the new one, again, has plenty of horsepower to actually stream and show 1080p video, no problem, 4K video, no problem, 4K HDR video, no problem. I don't have an HDR TV. I do have a 4K TV that, that I've hooked up the Shield. And the TV playback's been fantastic because all of my television streaming in the house is, I'm sorry, television content in the house is done through the internet. I use PlayStation View for my typical channels and then Amazon and Netflix and so on. Those come in 4K and 4K HDR now for Amazon and so on and so forth. So so from that perspective, it's good. It's interesting also uh, because A, it runs Android TV, the latest version of Android TV. And so it's got built-in voice recognition. We talked about that a little bit earlier with Sonos. So you can use the remote or the game controller and do searches by voice. You get Google Now type information. But the interesting thing from an IoT perspective, I think, is that NVIDIA said, we're going to bring Google Assistant to this. And because you're not always in the same room as your Shield, we're going to sell these little $50 plug-in modules that basically are microphones that you put throughout your house. And some people say, well, I don't want you know, an always listening house. Some people do want that. Those that do will have access to Google Assistant through these little plug-in modules, which I think is really, really intelligent. Really intelligent. So That is uh, smart. So yeah. eventually, if I have, as more things get connected to Google Home, right, mm -hmm. I could be able to control it via the Shield? Is that the idea? That is the idea. Absolutely. Ooh. It would be no different than having an actual Google Home hardware device or using your phone if Google Assistant is supported, which right now is the Pixel and the Pixel XL. So, yeah. So uh, so then and, the and question becomes, which version of Google Assistant? Will it do the phone version, the home version, or the Allo version? Well, the phone version is the same as the home version by and large. By, by and large. <laughs> I know there's a I know there's a couple little things that are different. I know, I know, I know. And then Allo, as you mentioned, in case people don't know, you can tag Google. You can say at Google in any chat with your friends on Allo, and you get the Google Assistant smarts in the conversation. So like Stacey, if you and I are chatting and we happen to be in the same city and say, let's get some dinner somewhere, we can add at Google in that chat and say at Google find me the closest barbecue restaurant that has four stars or better. And boom, it'll just give us both that information. And then we have maps and reviews and so on and so forth. So yeah. Fancy. Real quick, just in case there's a gamer out there, just in case. The other reason I, got, I bought the Shield is because it offers the NVIDIA GeForce Now subscription for $8 a month. First month is free, where they actually run console games on PCs or servers in the cloud and stream them to you in real time. So there's no download, there's no installation. So I was playing a 1080p 60 frames per second version of Tomb Raider, for example, on the Shield, which I also have from my Xbox, 
indistinguishable between the Shield and the Xbox, although the difference is on the Shield, it's all running in the cloud. It's neat. The thing is... I was like, give me the caveat. Yeah, the caveat is that if you're going to stream games from GeForce Now at 1080p, 60 frames a second, they look incredible, but you also need an incredible connection for that. They say 50 megabits per second is what they recommend. And that's like, even, even with my 150 meg service here... I occasionally see some some jaggy jitter and some stuff like that going on occasionally. So, you know. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> your mileage may vary. Yeah. If, I mean, if you're on something, some slow internet, don't even think about it. So how much is the Shield? The Shield is $199, which is the same as it was a year or two ago when they debuted it. The difference is another smart move. They're including the remote and they're including the game controller, both of which have a microphone. Before, you had to buy at least one, if not both of those, separately for like 40 bucks a pop or 50 bucks a pop even. So you're getting that now included. I'm glad you mentioned this, though. Remember how I started this by saying if you have an old NVIDIA Shield, don't upgrade because you don't need it because you're going to get all the same software? The voice remote stuff comes built into the game controllers. You may want to get a new controller for your old Shield. Something to keep in mind. Got it. All right. I feel like we're out of time. So I'm going to do a pretty quick review of Stringify to tell you about it, and then we'll spend some more time on this in another show. So Stringify is kind of like, it's it's a way for you to connect lots of devices together and create what they call flows, which are basically recipes for making something happen. So the reason this is cool or useful is they finally released an Android version. Now the Android version is still in beta. And so it's not as full functioning as the iOS version. If you're really into the smart home and you have a bunch of devices, it supports a lot of devices, like 30 or 40 that I have. And then it also supports more than one conditional statement. So you know where if this and that you have to do, there's a limit. What you do is you bring all of the devices in onto what they call a canvas. And if you do download this, I really recommend you watch the video on how to do this because it is, it's not super intuitive. So the video on how to make flows is going to be your friend if you want to do this. So you pick all of your devices and let's say I want to do, I'm trying to think of something to do here. Okay. When my Nest Cam sees a person and I'm not at home, send me an email and also turn on the lights. So that doing that and if this and that would take multiple recipes and it's kind of a pain. So here, what I would do is I pull in my Nest Cam, I pull in my location There are little icons for each device. So I pull in my Nest Cam icon, I pull in my location icon, and I'm going to put those on the left side. Everything goes from left to right here. And then I'm going to also, the things I want to have happen, I'm going to pull in the email icon, and then I'm going to pull in the, oh, light. I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) I'm going to pull in the light icon, and I'm going to put those on the right. So then I basically set a trigger for each of those. So location is when I'm away and Nest Cam is when I see a person. And then on the other side, I'm going to set triggers for each of those. And then I basically link them. I just, I move, I click on that icon and then I move it over to each of the things that I want to have happen when something happens. Mm -hmm. And it creates these strings between them. And voila, I have created a fairly complex flow. And this, again... You're going to have to play with this. I'm going to do a review eventually that'll have like screenshots and that'll be really helpful for everyone. But (laughs) 
this is free. They support, you know, things like the Echo, they support Hue, they support Arlo, NetAtmo, Nest, like an amazing array of services. I think Ecobee, they don't do Sonos. So just telling you there, they do Mm -hmm. like Skybell. I don't know if they do August. It's a pretty comprehensive system. It's free. The way they pay for it is they actually do the same sort of thing for enterprise customers, and those guys actually pay for it. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, instead of the enterprises have to figure out all the APIs for all these devices and code things oh, themselves. No, no. So, they actually do this for enterprise customers. They give like corporate IT departments these flows and support devices on those systems. So, that's I how gotcha. they don't actually charge. They just pull APIs from... Like for the Facebook and web-based ones, they usually just pull like the publicly available APIs. And then for the device people, they actually usually have a conversation with them. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. Interesting model, business model. It is. And we'll see. But like, I encourage anyone who's got multiple devices, who's interested in more complicated smart home programming to check this out. And it's, it's still bare bones on the Android side iOS is better and there's still features that they need to add, but you know, that'll come. Cool. All right. Stringify y'all. And now we'll say toodaloo, Kevin, and we will hear from our sponsor. Oh, but, but stay tuned. Don't go anywhere (laughs) because we have several guests. We're going to talk about the industrial internet, where it's at today, how companies can bring in several vendors and even advice for companies who are just starting to work with some of these big providers and how they can keep their pricing and margins stable. It's going to be good. Hey, everyone, we are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Dell. And I have Ivan O'Connor, who is head of IoT at ActionPoint Technology Group to talk about ActionPoint and their partnership with Dell. So ActionPoint is an IoT custom software development house. So we specialize in building IoT systems. We're a systems integrator, uh, and we also write all the software that pulls an IoT solution together from, from end to end. So our partnership with Dell is actually a long-standing partnership for over 10 years. This year, we're, we're in a fully accredited Dell Premier partner, and we're also one of a handful of global IoT systems integration partners that Dell has. So what are your tips for a successful IoT partnership? One of the things, and I know um, Dell on the same page with us on this, is we never force fit a partnership. It's very easy when you have, you're trying to put an IoT solution together that you can force fit certain partners into the solution. But it's really important from a customer viewpoint that you never do that. I, I think on the other side of things, for a successful partnership, you know, I'd be a, a certainly, a certainly a believer that givers get. I would always try and uh, you know emphasize that we we understand our partners and what are the key drivers for our partners and we work towards that and typically then our own objectives get achieved. So I think that's probably the the two main tips for for successful partnership. Awesome. What are some IoT use cases that you're seeing right now? It's funny, you know, we we we've an awful lot of use cases. So uh, even in the in the broad area of water, we have use cases in bottling plants. We have use cases in water quality monitoring in hospitals, uh, and that's a particularly interesting one. We have a particular client, and we're working with them because at the moment, they're sending their engineers into hospitals to literally turn on a tap, run the tap for 30 seconds, stick a probe underneath the tap, 
and write down on a clipboard what the temperature of the water is. Now, this is all in connection with monitoring the water quality and making sure there are no bacteria in the water. But it's a hugely time-consuming process, and it's prone to error as well. It's a prime example where IoT can come in. What we do in that instance is that we stick a, a relatively low-cost probe onto the, the faucet. We also install a Dell Edge gateway, so that will be connected to the probe. And then from there, we run local edge processing on the Dell Edge gateway. So what we're doing is saying if there's a, a temperature issue, then a local siren or alarm can be set. And indeed, we then post that data to the cloud where detailed reports can be sent out to the line managers. SMS alerts can be sent, voice alerts can be sent, etc. Ivan, it sounds great. So where can I find out more? You can put down all the information you need from action-point.com which is our URL. We have a lot of uh, interesting IoT case studies and you can certainly reach out and contact us from there too. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This week I'm doing something a little bit different for y'all. I've got three guests from a visit I took to the National Instruments lab opening. So this is an industrial IoT lab where I learned about a lot of crazy cool things and I talked to Jamie Smith, the Director of Embedded Systems at National Instruments, and Alex Daveron, the CEO at National Instruments. Alex had the lovely Irish lilt in his voice. So I'm Jamie Smith. I'm the Director of Embedded Systems here at National Instruments. And I'm Alec Daveron, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, National Instruments. All right. Today we are here at National Instruments. They are launching their Industrial Internet of Things Lab, which you guys may be like, what? But there's actually so many people playing in the Industrial Internet of Things and figuring out how to get everything to work together is tough. So let's kick this off with a question about partnerships. I see HP, OSIsoft, Intel, Cisco. There's a lot of people here. How do companies bring you in? Are they bringing you in as this like massive conglomeration or are they bringing you in individually? That's a really good question uh, because it is a large number of collaborators that are needed to build these complex systems and the customer engagements happen in a wide range of uh, options. So National Instruments, we're experts in measurements technology and processing right there at the edge where sensors are coming into the industrial internet of things. And all of the collaborators we work with are aware of that. So when their customers and their engagements need additional sensing capability, additional measurements, or some form of advanced control right there at the edge, they'll bring us in uh, to these applications. So where is your edge? Because the edge could be a gateway or it could be like the sensors. That's a really good question as well that where we define the edge, you know, if we think about a traditional definition, it's where the enterprise network begins and is the barrier to the office network or the home network begins or is the boundary to the internet service provider, right? That's the typical edge boundary. I just got back from CES and man, the industrial internet was where it's at. Consumer is like, "Mm, so-so, low margin, blah, blah, blah. Where is the industrial internet today and where is it going? So the industrial internet today, it's happening, right? Many of the distributed systems that been built in the past are now becoming more open, more complex, and collaboration of more vendors to drive some of these larger insights. 
but the majority of uh, industries and companies and user companies have not adopted these approaches yet. So we're just getting started. You know, we're just scratching the surface, as you, as you might say. But we're seeing a lot of interest, and the end-to-end technology stacks are becoming validated and proven through test beds like we have in the lab, in the IoT lab. And if we can educate more of these uh, end customers about these validated stacks, then they can start doing a pilot program and then move on to broader adoptions to get these uh, insights that are required to really impact it. When you guys, actually, let's talk about your Duke implementation, because that ties to a couple things you've mentioned already. One is that, holy cow, they didn't have anything. And now they have, was it 30,000 sensors? I guess, how did that come about? And is that typical? Is there a typical? I would say there is no typical yet in the industrial Internet of Things. Duke Energy is the largest power provider in the United States, and they realize that they can improve their overall uptime of their facilities if they had more information. They had experts in analysis of this vibration data of this rotating equipment, but they spent 80% of their time doing data collection and 20% of their time analyzing the data they collect. They wanted to flip that. So they put an effort out to completely automate the measurement taking across their entire fleet so their analysts could spend 80% of their time analyzing their data and ensuring uptime and less time maintaining the measurement equipment itself. How was the data collected originally? So the data was collected originally by walking around with portable measurement equipment and capturing information that then needed to be transferred into a spreadsheet or another application. Now these systems are online, always acquiring and connecting to the network to feed into their their plant historian or the facility historian so their uh, experts can look at that data from any plant on any channel at any time and stitch them together and drive insights. Uh, Perhaps to build on that too, you know, when we look at some of this aging infrastructure that's prevalent not only in the United States but around the world, part of the data collection process used at many of these large power plants around the world is the human. And it can literally get as as simple or as sophisticated as I'm going to touch the machine to feel the vibration, I'm going to smell it, and I'm going to listen to it as a data collection and capture mechanism. Part of the trend we've also seen for many customers in a similar situation as their experts are doing this also tend to be getting a little older and headed towards retirement. And they're worried about the ability to be able to replicate that. So as we deliver technologies that make it practical to be able to collect that data in a synchronized fashion, securely, ideally in the future over a wireless network. And then we develop the the historian and and the ability from a prognostics point of view to record the symptoms of an impending future failure or downtime. Then that learning can be learned once and applied many times in an automated fashion to dramatically improve their uptime, deliver business value to them, and to their customers, and also dramatically improve their use of energy, uh, which is an interest of us all. Awesome. So we're talking about systems, all of these partners, all of this is happening. How do you guys write contracts or sell the product in a way that ensures you guys get the value for what you're providing? Because when you've got massive numbers of companies, it just feels very daunting. So perhaps I'll address that question. We, as a company, National Instruments, have always operated as part of an ecosystem where the ultimate end solution involved 
components from multiple suppliers to be delivered. So we're a tool supplier and a system supplier to scientists and engineers. So this has been our, our standard business model in our test and measurement market, and we've applied this to as we've expanded our capability out into control. And so for us, the, the business model is really clear. For most of the partners that we're engaging with, it's relatively well understood their portion in the value chain. And ultimately, the customer will decide. Some situations like Duke Energy, the customer will choose to purchase components from different elements of the value chain and, and integrate it themselves. And that's a valuable use case. Uh, in other cases, the customer will want to perhaps have one entity go prime to deliver that complete value chain. And in that situation, you know, we have dealt with that as a business for many years and have a, a really clear way to, to capture our value. So do you have tips for companies who are kind of in, they're coming at this for maybe the first time? Well, certainly understanding your value in the solution is the single most important thing. Understanding how differentiated your value is, not how differentiated you'd like it to be or you might want it to be, but how differentiated it, it actually is. And you get that from the customer? Do you get that? Where I, mean, I think you get that from the customer, absolutely. You know, in some cases it can get clouded. We have a great benefit at National Instruments because we also have a direct field sales force. So we have direct access to the customer. We sell to over 35,000 different companies around the world every year. And we have deep relationships at the engineer-to-engineer level. And so our value is generally relatively well understood already to core constituencies within that customer. And that helps provide the frame of reference and helps provide a benchmark for us to be able to engage with a complete system level provider. So my advice in, in short would be understand your value, understand how differentiated it is truly. And I would try to establish a price position independent of an integrated channel selling direct to individual customers to be able to validate my first two assumptions and be able to prove both to the end customer and my integration partners uh, the value that I bring to the market. I would think also your relationship with engineers is important because as we've seen in cloud computing, developers are often bringing in some of these newer SaaS solutions in, and there's a lot more respect now for technical expertise. On the industrial side, is that same sort of kind of, it may not be grassroots, but it might be respect for the technical. Absolutely. The, as we look at IT and OT converging, the people who understand the problems that need to be addressed are those on the factory floor or on the plant floor or in the field with the customer using the product that the company has made. So they understand the needs and what needs to change, but they may not have the insights into information technology, analytics in the cloud. So there's technical respect on both sides of the organization, and it's becoming clear that these groups need to work together. And I would say that's the biggest shift I've seen. If we look at the first part of my career at National Instruments, there was a desire for companies to provide very silo, very closed systems to own the entire solution, and, and in some cases even hold a customer captive to their solution. Today, those barriers are being broken down, and companies that are supplying to end customers are, have a willingness and a desire to collaborate, and the customers are demanding that type of collaboration. And so as companies are evaluating what move to make for the industrial internet of things, these would be the end customers, the one piece of advice I would give to them is to don't wait. Put down your biggest challenge, your biggest headache, your biggest opportunity for improvement, 
and start working to see how you can address that issue. That starting point can blossom to, to real impact for your company now and then to the next project and the next project because these transformations are not going to be enterprise-wide all at once. And some people have that view and they get paralyzed by it. You hear that, guys? You guys are the people who are going to make a difference and you should totally be empowered. So saith and I. And now we go to Jim Heppelman, the CEO of PTC. We talked about how PTC has acquired several companies such as Exita, Coldlight, Vuforia from Qualcomm, and Kepware, all to build a platform for the Internet of Things called Thingworks. Oh yeah, and it also acquired Thingworks. So I checked in with Jim to find out how a year later those acquisitions were performing. The vision is alive and well. The business is doing exceptionally well. But, you know, our vision was uh, we want to be able to collect data from the physical world, analyze that data with machine learning and predictive analytics, and find out what we need to know, and then be able to turn around using augmented reality and kind of decorate your view of that physical world with important digital information. AR is less computed intensive than VR because it's just an overlay. Yeah. Are companies actually using this? And when they do, do they use the like service technician smartphone? Do they use their ruggedized tablets? Yeah. I think we're, uh, we're in the early days of AR, but it's proving kind of at that point where it's becoming actually feasible to do this at scale. The big thing, though, is the digital eyewear. As the digital eyewear becomes better and a little more ubiquitous, that will just unleash a wave of AR. Because what's happened is we have more data than ever, and we need to explain it to people. And there's no better way than to make it visual um, and to put it in context of the physical world that we're talking about. So I think we're, uh, we're at the edge of a big breakthrough. There is substantial breakthroughs happening with digital eyewear. I mean, the Microsoft HoloLens is unbelievable, yes. and it's like $2,000. Um, well, and there's the Snapchat spectacle. So yeah. let's, let's actually talk about like what we need. Is this going to be something like the smartphone, which consumers bring in and is like consumer-grade technology, or do we need like industrial-grade? And I bet it depends on your use case. But I see this heading to uh, consumer-grade pretty quickly. I think Microsoft is targeting the HoloLens at a consumer-ish price point. They're not quite there, but they're, they're getting in the ballpark. What's happening right now is consumers are using phones and tablets as a proxy for smart glasses. Mm-hmm. You actually get the same experience. The downfall is it ties up your hands. So a service technician can use a tablet or a phone to see what they need to see, but then they have to set the phone or tablet down to do the next step and then pick it back up to see the step after that, whereas with smart glasses, they would just work you know, fluidly without interruption because their hands are free. So, in a sense, if I'm going to go crazy here, voice for the IoT, because it's hands-free and that's why everyone loves it, is kind of the command. It is the sensor. It's telling you information for the Internet of Things. You're saying vision and computer-generated AR is going to be the actuator, in yeah. a sense. It's yeah. going to give me the information I need to take. Boom, boom. Hands action. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I like it. That brings up another point, which is uh, if the pictures aren't in context then you have to do a mental mapping. It's what happens to you in your car all the time when your navigation system in your dashboard says turn left on this street. And you say, was it, you look down through the windshield, you say, is it that street or that driveway or that parking lot? Trying to map the two. And it's a process that requires a fair amount of, you know, mental cognition to accomplish. And then if I could make it peripheral, you know, hemispherical view of the world where I can look up, down, left, right. So basically what I'm saying is if we can figure out with smart glasses how to decorate the world 
you're in, the room you're in, with the information you need to know about the people and the things and, and the environment, your ability to ingest that information literally is millions of times faster than it would be to read it off the screen of your phone or, or your computer. So it's a, it's a big idea. You know, IoT creates so much data, so much knowledge of the physical world that you can't see. And rather than make you look at it in a computer and then mentally map it, we just want to decorate what you see with what you need to know. So that feels like we need some sort of standard because you may decorate with one format of information. That other company, or Oculus, let's pick a consumer thing, yep. but eventually you kind of might want it to come together? I'm not 100% sure if it needs to be a standard, but I think we definitely need techniques. Like if you think about... Uh, for uh, user interface development on computers, Microsoft has a set of techniques. Apple has a slightly different set of techniques. Another vendor might be slightly different. But there are good practices for developing graphical user interfaces and bad practices. If we move now into AR, there are no practices. It's just the Wild West. And uh, definitely the world needs to advance and document what is the state of the art so that we can do this well and, and hopefully using familiar paradigms so if I move from one device to another, like I can move from a, you know, an Android phone to an Apple phone, and they're not really that different, even though they are a little different. I can figure it out pretty quickly. And a lot of the apps, of course, look the same either way. And a lot of times it's those little differences that cause a lot of problems. Because I, I noticed this in my home talking to the Amazon Echo versus the Google. Yeah. If I'm in the wrong room, I'm like, oh, and nothing happens. And I'm like, damn it, this is the Google home room. <laughs> So I can only imagine that if I switch from, it, maybe it's not as big a deal in industrial because it's your job, but if you had two different platforms, even on the same factory floor, then that could just like drive people nuts. Yeah, I think the whole idea of AR is to make information visual and, of course, oral, but to put it in context so that you can actually process it without thinking about it. That's uh, a tall order. Well, I'm saying it happens all the time. If you're driving your car and you pull up to a stoplight and it's red and you stop, you didn't look and say, oh, that looks like a stoplight oh, it's red, oh, red means stop, okay, therefore I'm going to stop. You just do it. What are some things you're seeing in maybe focus groups or what are, what are you seeing so far with AR interactions? Well, I think we're seeing lots of things. First of all, it's a powerful idea. And there are many uh, tests, many demonstrations that prove that people are far more productive and make far fewer mistakes. So I think there are many case studies now from PTC and from various others that show enormous breakthroughs. The reason IoT and AR belong together, though, is because AR decorates the physical world, but decorated with what? We, we need information from the physical world and an understanding through analytics, running on our HPE edge servers and so forth, to know what, what is the condition, what is the status, what is the action you should take, how do I convey that status and condition to you, and then how do I convey to you the action and actually step you through it? Right, because right now... I have the equivalent of information. I can tell you how many steps I've taken. I can tell you the temperature of my house. I can tell you the decibels, the humidity, the, the blah, 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 blah. All of that does me no good without being able to take any sort of action on it. Right. So, Because if you think back to driving in a car, you have a navigation system and you have the view through the windscreen. And if I could cherry pick the information from the navigation screen and give you a heads up display mm -hmm. on the windscreen, not to say... Um, there are three roads coming up, and you should take the uh, second one. But to actually say, see this road right here? Turn on it. Right. Right? So that's a heads-up display. Of course, if you think now 
fighter pilots have had heads-up displays for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in, like, the Joint Strike Fighter, it's actually a head-mounted thing now. It's a helmet you wear. So if we could take that notion of the heads-up display, put it on everything, people, furniture, industrial objects, pumps, and give you a heads-up display on everything simply by putting on a pair of glasses and everything you interact with has a heads-up display that's optimized for interacting with that thing, I think it's a big, powerful idea. So then it would be like, this is a person, here's the data someone might know, but of course I might want to know different data about a person based on business context or personal context. Absolutely. Oh, we don't have enough standards, we don't have enough anything for this. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if I engage you uh, in a social context, I want to understand social attributes about you. If I'm your doctor, I want to have a completely different perspective of Stacy. Even though, quite frankly, I might have both of those relationships with you and flip between them. Let's talk about security because what we're talking about here, the number one reason companies say that they're not implementing industrial IoT solutions is security worries. What are the actual concerns among your customers? What should they be concerned about? Let's go there. To me, first of all, I I think this uh, notion of IoT being a new set of security problems is wrong. It's the same security problems we have with computers. It's just more things are computers. So we're taking all the problems we have right now and we're extending them to things that you didn't think of as computers, like your automobile. And of course, uh, more and more, these things that aren't computers, we can control. So there is increased risk around... It's like there's a lot of actuators that a computer does not have. (laughs) Right. Although, in a lot of cases, those actuators are already being controlled by computers that are hackable. Right. If you think of a power plant, you know, that's all already computer controlled. So I think the security thing, I often say to people, there's no CIO that can say my data center is safer than it was 10 years ago. They just can't really say that. Now, in the last 10 years, they might have invested a tremendous amount in technology and techniques and practices and so forth to try to make it more secure. But we're just in an open-ended battle. What is going to be the big thing this year in industrial? What I'm seeing in our business is factory automation. You know, factories have always been automated or, or have been for a long time. But what's happening now is people are saying, I could add so much more sensing and get so much more data that would be useful in automation. And I could do a lot of analytics at the edge within the factory around what is this telling me? Um, We've been thinking about that for like years. I mean, but I think, I think what's happening is people are spending money on it now. I know in our business, our, our business is going very well. Growth rates very high, and if you ask what's driving most of that growth, it's factory automation. And these are pilots, or are these? It's both because right. people are who are just getting started are pilots, but a lot of the pilots are graduating into bona fide business. You know, real orders from real customers who are now relying on this. I think uh, I said on our last earnings call that last year half of our revenue, uh, sorry, half of our bookings. New business bookings came from customers who were coming back for more. Nice. Okay, so yeah, that's a substantial amount. That's it for this week's show. But please remember to join us next week on the Internet of Things podcast. And thank you for listening. Also, if you do want more information, don't forget to go to stacyoniot.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter. See you next week. 